They were high school sweethearts that got married and had two kids. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Brunig. Uh, my co-host, Liz, is not here today, but I have an even better replacement, and that is uh, Matt Stoller of the, right now, Open Markets Institute. Is that the appropriate? Okay. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Matt has just published a book called Goliath. I don't remember the uh, subtitle, but it is, uh, you know, uh, the history of Monopoly uh, 100 the, the year. The 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy. There we go. All right. So, he says grumpily. <laughs> yes. Uh, all books have to have subtitles these days. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's how it goes. You always have like a very short, like one word, like, ooh, punch you in the face. And then and then there's like a whole sentence after. My, it, so. my next book is going to be called Subtitle. How all books need to have subtitles. Oh, that's days. good. That's yeah, yeah. It'll be like a shrunken white type, uh, yeah, yeah, like style guide. That's very, very smart. Um, so, so yeah. Tell me about this hundred year war. Now, what, what are, the, what is the hundred year period? First off, uh, when does it start? When does it end? Are we nineteen twenty to twenty twenty? Uh, you know, just, just run me through the book because I, I, you know, I haven't spent too much time on it, though I do have a copy. Yeah. So, uh, so the book is a series. It's a story about uh, how we handled corporate power in America and, you know, sort of globally as well, but but centering on America. And it starts basically at the beginning of the, the creation of the modern corporate state. So 1910 or so, I mean, there have been corp- there, there was a, a large merger boom from the 1890s to the early 1900s. And, uh, and that created what is modern corporate America. So like, Companies like General Electric, that kind of thing. That's when it there was a social movement to create the corporate state, and then the the real election that structured how we would write the rules for this corporate state was in 1912. And so the book starts with a speech. Well, it actually starts in the mid 70s, but then there's a flashback, and and uh, the there's a speech in 1910 that Teddy Roosevelt is giving at a John Brown festival in Kansas, Osawatomie, Kansas, and John Brown is the the great hero who martyr died before the civil war tried to do a slave rebellion that's very interesting i didn't even realize they had uh that, that seems really it seems even today to be dicey to be like john brown yay but oh man they were oh, totally into john brown okay. i mean john brown is great right? yeah I yeah mean, like, i know but like, like if you say it online sometimes people are like are you well, an insurrectionist I mean, it's, right. uh, you know, it's kind of like well yeah. if there's there's slavery but, yeah. i know I, <laughs> like, we got to make an exception at least for that well, case well, uh, I mean, you know so so john john brown is the greatest john brown festival of all you know john brown festival and john brown was a really important figure for the republican party in the in the 19th century so at this speech uh, teddy roosevelt says there are three great crises in american history there's the revolutionary war there's the great slave power the civil war and then today which is 1910 he says the, the problem which is similar to those other problems of the great special interests the corporation 
and he he says he gives a speech of the where where he unveils what's called the new nationalism, which is a way of handling this dr- tremendous concentration of power, uh, control over what had been sort of formerly kind of independent merchants and farmers, uh, and uh, you know and and, and we're talking about white people. Right? Sure, yeah, I mean, yeah, then, yeah. You know, you you got like sharecropping and serving. There's, there's like a terrorist and... regime in this in the South. It's sure, just a straight yeah. up fascism. But Teddy Roosevelt um, gives this speech and says, you know, we need to. Um, uh, and that, by the way, that's not hand waving that problem away because it is integrated into the story. But it's just to say that that for the purposes of the corporate talking about these corporate debates, um, in he comes out and he says. You know, we need to, we have this tremendous concentration of power. What do we do with it? And what we need to do is we need to concentrate that power in my hands, right? So monopolies are natural. Monopolies are efficient. And monopolies are global. We, we have to have American monopolies to fight foreign monopolies. This is Teddy Roosevelt? This is Teddy Roosevelt, right? Which a lot of people think of him as a great trust buster, yeah. but he wasn't. That's he what just, Warren always says. I know. Warren, yeah. you know, is wrong. And Bernie says it too. And it's sure. like a lot of people on the on the left are really into Teddy Roosevelt because they think he was a trust buster. Really, he was not. He was like a Trump-type figure who just used the Sherman Act to try to boss around companies. Oh, okay. I mean, and, and then in 1912, he, when he was running, he said, I want to repeal the antitrust laws. And I, instead, I want to replace it with a commission to force big companies to do what I say, right? Right, that's, right, That right. was his, and, and, you know, he had wage and hour laws. It was, it was a kind of state sort of socialist quasi-planning type of thing. In fact, Eugene Debs, who was the socialist in 1912, accused Teddy Roosevelt of sort of stealing his platform. Okay, yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And then he faced uh, Taft, who was basically like, ah, you know what, uh, monopolies are natural, yeah, you're right, but like, let's just leave those guys in charge. After all, they built them, they know how to run these big companies, let's just let them keep doing it. Sure, yeah. And then, so those were the kind of the two pro-monopoly candidates. Uh, actually, no, so Taft wasn't a, Taft was sort of like a light anti-monopolist, so he he was like, we'll just use some antitrust here and there. Um, and then Debs, who was who wanted to nationalize everything, he was like, "Yes, monopolies are natural." And then the the opponent was Woodrow Wilson, and Woodrow Wilson was advised by Louis Brandeis, and his view was, "We need to do." He called his frame the new freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And and Teddy Roosevelt's the most popular American politician of all time, right? This guy's like massive. He's the first president to really ever do anything that wasn't you know calling in soldiers to just shoot strikers, right? In 1901, he like mm-hmm. hel- actually helps miners, right? He's, so he's like this p- super popular guy and he wants to concentrate power in this really dangerous way. He wants to attack the judiciary. And Woodrow Wilson comes in and says, you know what? I don't agree with um, with Teddy Roosevelt's idea that these that we need to have uh, public masters, right? Monopolists, but then we'll, we'll put the state on top. And I don't agree with Taft that we should just kind of let them do whatever they want and have private masters. In fact, I don't want any masters. Sure. Right? What I want is is I want to break up these guys, but then I want to regulate the markets. I want to regulate the business practices so that you don't reconsolidate power and so that uh, people compete based on uh, based on social objectives that are that are good. Right. Um, now, now that that now Woodrow Wilson ended up winning, and then almost immediately he broke up uh, AT and T. For the first time, we've broken up AT&T three times mm-hmm. in the 20th century. Um, <laughs> that he, one suggests natural monopoly, maybe, because uh, uh, it just keeps coming back. Well, no, it's it, uh, <laughs> it was the same thing. I mean, you could say the same thing about democracy. I mean, you constantly have to keep renewing it, right? Sure, so yeah. um, it's just there are always new problems. But um, And each time, the breakup had really good impacts. But okay, so so he breaks up AT&T, uh, f- creates the Federal Reserve, creates the Federal Trade Commission, um, f- uh, passes the Clayton Act, which is a merger law, 
uh, pr- prohibits for the first time a child labor or tries to prohibit it, uh, farm supports, just kind of a whole bunch of things to reorganize the economy. It's this massive attack on what was called the money trust. And then World War I starts. And there's this incredible concentration of power in the hands of J.P. Morgan because Woodrow Wilson, who brought the country into World War I, basically, we don't have the administrative capacity to finance the buildup. And so he just kind of hands it over to, to J.P. Morgan. And then it's just kind of a catastrophe. And towards the end, he has a series of strokes. And towards the end of the administration, you know, J. Edgar Hoover gets power at what is the, the beginnings of the FBI. And you see the first Red Scare. And um, just like World War One is just is so such a massive deal that when the war breaks out in Europe before the U.S. enters, the stock market is shut down for six months, right? So, by the way, you guys can't see this, but I'm gesticulating wildly. Okay, right? yes, yes. Um, uh, anyway, so it's this, it's and then it, the, there's this incredible moment of disillusionment, which is the 1920s, and that's a, a period of of just straight up corporatism. In the U.S., it's it's really scary. The KKK gets millions of members. There's an agricultural depression. Um, money pools at the top. You know, there's there's workers. You know, in 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 coal mines. There's like. You know, Andrew Mellon, who's this the really important character in the book, becomes the Secretary of Treasury. He's also the third richest man in the country. He owns, he's basically a private equity baron. He owns three Fortune 500 companies, also owns and runs a lot of coal mines. In 1928, just as an example, his brother, who's his business partner, is asked by a senator, hey, can you um, can you run a coal mine without machine guns? And he says, oh, I don't see how you could do that. And then he's like, oh, I didn't mean that, uh-huh. right? And so it's like this really scary decade. And Andrew Mellon actually talks a lot about how much he likes Mussolini and how the, he's, the Republicans are kind of the party of not quite Mussolini because they don't shoot people, but they they kind of, well, not officially, they do it in the mines, but like it's the party of kind of capitalism and unrestrained and prosperity, whereas the Democrats are the party of the Soviet Union, right? Okay. Because the Soviet Union starts in, out of World War One too. I mean, it's really this kind of earth-shattering event. Um, and so that's that's the 19th, it's a scary decade, but it's it's scarier abroad, right? That's when Italy turns yeah, fascist. Yeah, it's yeah, also sure. the beer hall putsch in Germany and you see corporatism rising. And there, it's also this moment where people just don't believe in democracy anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So the US Army writes, a, their training manual says, you know, democracy brings demagoguery and all these bad things. And, you know, there's there's this, uh, that's when political science is created. It's this when, uh, you know, Walter Lippmann writes a couple of books saying democracy doesn't work. Like there's really a basic disillusionment broadly about democracy itself as a system of governing. And then you have the 1930s and the book, that's when I describe how this attempt to take on the robber barons, which really goes stretches back to the, before Teddy Roosevelt, uh, but it's stretched in the 1930s, you finally see a sustained attack on people like Andrew Mellon, who have been running the country really for, for 30 or 40 years. There are basically four large financial holding companies or financial alliances that run the country in the 1920s into the 1930s. It's JP Morgan, it's Andrew Mellon, it's John D. Rockefeller, uh, and it's the DuPonts. And the New Deal, what I looked at, you know, this is there's a congressman named Wright Patman, because I'm focused on Congress and and other players as opposed to just FDR. But there there are fights within the Democratic Party about what to do. And and uh, Wright Patman and a giant protest, which is called the Bonus Army of World War I veterans, ends up finding a way to remove Andrew Mellon from office. Patman files articles of impeachment, puts him on trial, uh, and then Hoover fires him and then tear gasses all the protesters, mm-hmm. right? Which when, when he does this, FDR is like, well, I guess I don't have to run run a campaign because Hoover is so unpopular. Sure, yeah. Um, 
But there's also a bitter primary in the Democratic Party. And Al Smith, who's funded by the DuPonts, wants to run on prohibition and not the economy. Because prohibition is like the social issue of the day, right? And what his strategy is, oh, we can get the business donors from the Republicans, and then we can run the country as the party of plutocracy. And and then uh, FDR and Patman and a whole bunch of others want to run on the economy. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bitter fight within the party about whether to do that. FDR ends up winning. And then the New Deal is about taking apart Andrew Mellon's empire, putting him on trial for tax fraud, doing antitrust, labor um, organizing, like labor laws, just you know, a whole series of laws that break up a, a bunch of different industries. So the first half of the book is really about how Americans, through this kind of populist movement, ended up taming the robber barons and having restoring some semblance of democracy, an imperfect democracy, but a democracy that was then able to actually build enough armaments to defeat the Nazis. Because there's a whole way that Hitler and the Germans were working with American monopolists not not because the American monopolists were Nazis, but just because they were, it was a cartel. They're trying to control production, and the New Dealers had to attack that. So it's just, that's the story in the 1950s, where you ha- saw you know broad, much more broad equality. Um, you saw the civil rights movement sort of exploding. You saw a lot of small business formation. You know the that that period where you had a, a much more democratic system that, compared to the 1920s. Uh, that was a result of these these systematic attacks on the um, on these oligarchs, and then also the deal that these oligarchs had cut in the South, which was which was the Jim Crow deal, right? Which was a, a deal between the Northern oligarchs and Southern racial, um, you know, the Southern racial apartheid state. And then um, I go into what happened next, right? So the first half is how we defeated the robber barons. The sure. second half of the book is about why we let them come back, mm-hmm. right? And that story starts with. Uh, the McCarthy era, right, and the those this new kind a new kind of thinking that emerges on the left and the right, but more on the left, which is a, which is comes from the John Kenneth Galbraith, is great historian, a uh, great economist, Richard Hofstadter, who's a historian, C. Wright Mills, who kind of coins the term the new left, basically the people that created the intellectual framework for the counterculture, mm-hmm. and what they said is all of those fights over the money trust, right, these fights of bitter battles between the railroad barons and the farmers, that's actually all kind of fake. That didn't really happen. What really was happening is you had a bunch of farmers and merchants who were Anglo-Saxons, and they were just, they didn't like kind of the new immigrants that were coming into the country. They had this kind of status anxiety, and they kind of psychologically displaced that onto plutocrats. Mm-hmm. Which were who were just like, they were a little bit boorish, they were a little bit rude, but they didn't really matter. There's this kind of inevitable... Um, strand of development that happens where just business gets big and big businesses are progressive. And that pre-creates affluence. Affluence mm-hmm. is just a natural thing that happens. It has nothing to do with political power or political fights. And that created the the counterculture, which was really focused on personal liberation and really started the people in the counterculture, the main, kind of a lot of the, the main leaders who eventually, you know, tr- that was that was the baby boom generation. They stopped looking at the world in, through the lens of how do we produce and what are the politics and power involved in producing. And they started to see the world through the lens of, the, of consumerism. Mm-hmm. So that leads into the 1970s when the New Deal started breaking down. A lot of the rules that were put in place because they were old and also because they there were some latent unsolved tensions that they hadn't dealt with. There were things like the railroad system, you know, now it had competition through trucking and airlines and they never updated the regulations. There were a bunch of problems that were, there was early deregulation. I go into how 
uh, Citibank really pushed for deregulation in the 1950s and 60s. And in the 1960s, you saw the beginnings of the return of Wall Street through the conglomerate boom. There's like a whole bunch of really fascinating things that are that are involved in reconstituting the robber barons. The return of Wall Street happens in the go-go years. Um, then the 1970s, what you find is uh, there's a debate about what to do as the system is falling apart. And the symbol, it's like the 1930s, except it's not a depression, it's inflation, it's corporate bankruptcies, a train system, New York City. And uh, and that debate, you know, the, the boomers basically swing the debate to the uh, the Chicago School, which is the group of people who had also started in the 1950s, like the Galbraithians. And they had built this system of called law and economics, which said, look, we have a lot of economic problems. The way to deal with them is to just get rid of restraints on concentrated capital and, and have the economists, right, these scientists who know how to run this inevitableist machine, let them deal with things, pull questions of corporate power, banking power out of politics, and just let us scientists handle it. And they aligned with big business, and then they persuaded the consumer rights movement, which was like sort of the the, the, the left of the 1970s, that they were right. And you saw early deregulation under Jimmy Carter. And then that's um, the, the first major group of baby boomers to get into Congress got in in 1974 as a reaction to Richard Nixon. Wright Patman had been fighting with the bankers from the early 1960s until the mid-1970s. He was the chair of the banking committee. He had been in Congress by then from 1929 until 1976. And the first thing that the Watergate babies did, and keep in mind, Wright Patman was the first Democrat to investigate Watergate. So mm. he impeaches Mellon in 32, investigates Watergate in 1972 before the election, gets all these new Democrats elected. First thing they do is remove him as banking chair. Okay. Right? And and there's there are reasons for that, but mostly it's because they didn't care about corporate power. It just didn't see it. It wasn't a thing to them. Mm -hmm. So they were like, ah, he's old, whatever. And they remove him. And this was Bill Clinton's generation. So 1974, that's Bill Clinton. He doesn't win, but that's his first race. He nearly wins a race for Congress. And they get incredibly confused. And some of the things that they do is they start getting rid of rules that prohibit chain stores from expanding in anti-competitive ways. They start deregulating railroads and airlines and and trucking, which has really bad impacts on labor. Um, and then in the 1980s, right, after Patman dies and it, they all are, are confused, Reagan gets rid of antitrust. And you see this systematic roll-up of power throughout the economy that has continued to this day. And a lot of the problems that we see today in terms of the corporate structure, things like Boeing, well, and then you know, Reagan does this and then Bill Clinton doubles down and I kind of show why and how he did that because he's Watergate baby, right? And then today we have all of these problems of um, you know systemic concentration and everything from technology to airlines to um, you know defense industrial base to peanut butter right coffins like in all of these areas that's a result of these political debates and then the new kind of interpretation of laws that the Watergate babies instantiated and so a lot of the problems that I think we have today wealth inequality income inequality regional inequality. Uh, political chaos and corruption are a function of the centralization of power in the hands of these uh, of these oligarchs. And the reason that it happened is because we put forward public policy to allow it to happen. And a lot of the anger that you see now, the the sort of chaos which is happening, I think, at all levels of American society, it's happening because people feel controlled and manipulated through these kind of invisible, invisible hand like bars or something like that, which are really just 
monopolies that are that are controlling what used to be open markets that had some flexibility and justice and equity, which now, of course, don't. Right now, we're just all servants of these of these great oligarchs, and mm -hmm. they say, "Well, be grateful, you stupid consumer." Right? We'll just we're flooding you with cheap stuff. What's your fucking problem? Mm -hmm. Right, and that's the world we live in today. And people, a lot of people, are just angry about that. And that's what what you see. That's our politics. It's also politics you see globally. But that's the gist of the book. So what's the so you know? It's called Goliath, the Hundred Year War between monopolies. <laughs> it's really fascinating. I learned. It is so fascinating. Much. I do think it is interesting to. I'm always a little bit uh, wishy washy on history books because it's you know obviously history contains a lot of content and you have to sort of pick the things you want to pick and you know to tell the narrative but you know like there's a, a different approach to this period of time you know that other people have put forward that sort of goes like well all right we see uh rapid industrialization like you see this with Piketty, for instance in his book um you see rapid industrialization that causes inequality to go up initially um you know on the kuznets curve if you've ever seen this I've thing uh <laughs> and then uh okay good yeah so and then you know there's this sort of backlash and you even get this sort of from marxist like polanyi right where it's like there's industrialization the rural areas sort of empty out as people go into the cities to work on the factories and the, you know these industrial installations and so on and you know that's like really hellish for a while but then labor comes in and is like really strong and can push back and then of course you in europe you get socialist movements and so on and you know then we have the social democratic period which followed this like labor unrest which was a kind of you know uh i don't know a tentative uh, ceasefire of sorts between capital and labor that was in large part or in significant part driven by the soviet union like oh fears of the soviet union like we you know we need to be somewhat nice to our workers because right. there's sort of this right. alternative and then you know the soviet union falls or is starting to falter you have this you know neoliberal turn labor's getting crushed and you know on and on it goes from there and so in that one it's sort of more a focus on industrialization than deindustrialization which is also coinciding with labor movements and socialist movements which then sort of go on the wane in the latter half of the 20th century in part some people will say for the same reasons you gave like ideologically which is emphasis on personal freedom and some people say identity politics and whatever um and then others will focus more on structural things like the soviet union was big bad and you know but as it started declining the west was less concerned about keeping its workers happy and just put the boot on the throat so like you know, I mean, I don't know. Do you find that narrative at all compelling? Is it is it coincidental? Maybe it it weaves in with yours. Well, well, so so, so you're first of all, you're broadly speaking about history. You're right, and I think one thing that's fun about writing history is you get to tell a story about what you know. You're you're basically trying to. So I have certain ideas about power, which come from the fact that I worked in in I've worked in politics for fifteen years. I've worked in Congress, and I wrote this book. Because I wanted to answer a question, which is why did we fuck up the financial crisis so badly, mm -hmm. right? And it like really drove me because you know I um, I used to you know I grew up uh, white, tall, wealthy, 
right? Life is fair for me, okay, right? Well, <laughs> maybe, yep. maybe unfair, but in the other direction. Uh, well, oh, yeah, no, but like, but, you, but yeah, yeah, what yeah. I mean is like, I've never, you know, had a, I've not, I'm, it's not like I've been systematically disrespected, sure, right? Yeah. Um, except in the way that kind of everyone is in a, in a American society. And so I, I trusted our institutions, right? I was like, I went to Harvard, I was like, well, you know, what I read the New York Times. The New York Times tells me the true things, right? Mm-hmm, and then yeah. um, it turns out that was bullshit. And I learned that during the Iraq War. And it, I was both naive and reckless and monstrous, right, all at once, right? right. Which is what you get trained to be, um, like in that in that kind of when you're in that power dynamic. Um, and during the financial crisis, because I learned that during the Iraq War, don't trust the men in suits. And then during the financial crisis, they were like, "Well, we have to foreclose on millions of people." And I was like. I don't trust you guys. Uh-huh. That's not true. Yeah. And I don't exactly know what the alternative is, but I know that you guys lied before and I know that you're lying again, right? And most Democrats were just like, they were like, oh, that's not true. Obama's so great. Like, let's focus on these other things. Let's focus on Obamacare. Let's not focus on the fact that everybody's losing their job and, and losing their home. That's just banking. That's just technical. Like, we can't that do anything about it. The scientists got that, right? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and, you know, some left-wingers eventually did a few protests outside of foreclosures. But it basically was just not part of the debate. And I just kept screaming at people like, what the fuck, guys? Everybody's losing their home. Like, you know, even for just purely self-interested reasons, like, we're foreclosing all our, all our voters. Yes. Right? Like, yes. that's bad. Um, yes. And so, but I was like, why did we fuck it up so badly, right? And it wasn't corruption, because I know that, like, a lot of the people that were doing it were doing it for free. They weren't getting bribed. Uh, they were just a bunch of bad ideas in their heads. And to understand why they were constrained, like it was not just Obama, right? It's not just Geithner. I think you could look at Geithner and you could say, that guy's a cynic. I think you could look at Bernanke and be like, that guy's a cynic. But like, when you're when you're looking at like, why do most Democrats support it? Why did everyone in Congress support it? Because there were bitter fights in the 1930s between Democrats in Congress and FDR. And there were a lot of Democrats in Congress, particularly from the South, who were who were more left-wing than FDR, mm-hmm. and right? And, and Patman was one of them. Why didn't that? Why didn't that dynamic re, like produce reproduce in two thousand and nine and ten? And there was some. There was a bunch of stories in our heads at that time, uh, and that the stories that were in our heads were this was the story that you just told, which was a story about inevitabilism, right? All of these things are just a function of industrialization. They're just a function of kind of these social movements. One thing happens, and that leads to you know a counter a counter. Um, a reaction from some other organized body. John Kenneth Galbraith called this countervailing power. He said, you don't need to do, like there was a big suit in the 1940s against the A&P supermarket, which was the kind of the Walmart of its day, right? And Patman was very involved in attacking chain stores. And so A&P was this controversy from the 20s until the 40s. And and this suit was like widely derided by by Robert Bork and by Galbraith and by C. Wright Mills because everyone was like, oh, those independent stores, they're, they're all dumb, run by racists who are inefficient. <laughs> um, A&P is clean and nice and good for consumers. Well, Galbraith talked about A&P as a result of what he called countervailing power. There were a large packets, good manufacturers, and the result of that power in one area of the supply chain is just naturally A&P emerged at the other end of that supply chain. 
and A&P had unionized workers. And so if you have, you know, the steel companies and, and companies like A&P, if they grow really big, then there's this natural countervailing force of unions that yeah. come in and do that. Right. Of course, that's bullshit. It's a total bullshit story. Is it like, though? It is. The, the, the A&P unionized its workers as a political response to the anti-chain store movement because they needed allies. Yeah, to well, allow, but that, and, that supports the point, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It supports the point of, of um, because the, the independent store owners were the ones who were um, who were pressing against the A&P. And then A&P essentially cut a deal to bring workers into their political arrangement. And it, what ended up happening is, in, and they, they cut a deal with farmers, um, it was a political deal and it was a political fight. But if you hadn't had a Patman there to do it, right, to lead that fight, it wouldn't have happened. You would have had Walmart today. Walmart doesn't unionize its workers, right? And like similarly, the, there was a really bitter fight in 1932 over the Democratic nomination and FDR nearly lost that nomination, right? It had to go through three ballots and the last one, he barely won. And it's weird why he won. He won because Herbert Hoover intervened to make him the nominee because Herbert Hoover thought FDR was the weakest of the Democratic candidates. Mm -hmm. And so Herbert Hoover actually went to um, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, who then talked to William Randolph Hearst. And William Randolph Hearst controlled the Democratic Texas delegation and swung the Texas delegation to FDR, which put him over the top. But FDR nearly lost. If he hadn't won that on that ballot, he would have been out of it. Mm -hmm. And you would have had a conservative Democrat who would have run, and he wouldn't have done what, he would have pursued Al Smith's strategy. Um, and, you know, the US wouldn't have been in a in a position to enter World War II the way that it did. And you would have, it could have gone, it could have actually gone fascist. FDR could have been shot too. That's another thing that could have happened. Or, or Patman may not have been elected, and then you wouldn't have seen the uh, the the large marches that were supporting Patman's bill, you mm -hmm. would have seen a different framework to attack the depression. I mean, in the U.S., we kind of cobbled together this kind of liberal democratic response to concentrated corporate power and then the crash. But in Germany, it went a very different way. In Japan, it went a very different way. In Italy, it went a very different way. Sure. Like, the, but, these kinds of things happen because people make them happen. So there's a free will aspect. And that's the fundamental disagreement that I have with that inevitableist framework is that it it airbrushes free will out of the picture. And so, you know, we today we have a giant chain stores that are not monop that are not unionized at yeah. all. And the reason is because we took we removed, we chose in the 1970s to prioritize the politics of consumption instead of the politics of production, and that was just a choice. It was a choice about ideas. Sure, yeah. It well, was, there was nothing and inevitable. I, and about I don't, it. I don't, I think the inevitabilism, because I've seen a lot of people make this argument, so I'm not sure entirely where it's where it's coming from. But I feel like there's a it, it needs to distinguish between arguments that are sort of inevitabilistic in the sense that they focus on technology changes. So on the one hand, industrialization comes in. Then through various reasons, some of industrialization obviously is pushed offshores, but then also there's just big technological advances that shrink the size of the industrial workforce, just like prior it shrank the size of the agricultural workforce. And you see right, that across like the whole West. and physical changes that happen yeah. in society. And so if that like is... That, the, or that, that, are, that, we, that we make happen, sure. right? Because the deployment of technology is political. That's a choice for right. sure. But 
you know, I don't know. It's a good choice in most cases to m- move the ball forward. Well, it I seems know. like I mean, um, cotton gin had a lot of bad impacts, right? I mean, in the 1790s. Well, we don't want to like, be. We wouldn't want to be sorting seeds out of cotton by hand. No, but I, I mean, mean right? but, the, but I think the 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 point is, is that technology is not. You can use technology in different ways, right? You can you can choose to. I mean, it's like you can use dynamite to, yeah. to help you, you know, to no, yeah, build yeah. mines, and you can use it to blow people but I think up, right? The, so. It's it just it it depends it de- depends on who you are. Like it's kind sure. of cool that I get to chat with my family on Facebook. It's not cool if you're like a Rohingya who's getting murdered because of yeah. Um, like so it's like I don't no I, I yeah the, I like, think the I think the impacts advances right. I think it's the impact just about power. Yeah, right? I think the impacts and how you implement the change obviously can be affected, but I mean. Because cause when I'm thinking about this argument, right, it's sort of like, oh, we had concentration, then we had deconcentration, then we had concentration again, and in the in the interim period when we were on the on the low end, that was that was the good times. I mean, that seems like you know, obviously, a very simplified version of it. But, <laughs> but you look at other, yeah, but it's basically right. You look at other <laughs> countries, and you know. I always look at Sweden, you know, in the mid-century, because mid-century Sweden to me is one of the best societies there there's ever been in, in you know, in terms of equality and that sort of thing. And it was they were going in the other direction for sure. Like concentration, concentration. The government was was buying up more and more and more of the national wealth. They went from the government went from owning like fifteen percent of the national wealth to owning right about fifty percent of it over the course of like twenty years. And in general, in those societies, the Nordic societies, they have a lot of concentration. Just, again, I don't want to say naturally, but they're very small markets. They're very small language markets. Sweden is a little is a, a lot better because about twice the size of the other ones. But you look at a country like Finland, they only have two real retail uh, firms that control the whole company. There's only two, really, S Group and... Uh, yeah, and, actually, I've gotten, uh, I've gotten inquiries from, from like Scandinavian... Who are like, tell me about this Robinson Patman law to address chain stores. We have a really big problem with concentration. But I'll say this. But, but they, 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 are, they but have, have the good thing. societies relative to us, even with much higher levels of concentrate. I mean, they do have the problem. Like, it is very highly concentrated. And yet, labor share is, you know, 5% I, higher. I, I don't disagree with that. But I would just say they're, they're, they're much smaller countries, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, if you have a very concentrated city, right? Or, or like take a family, okay? If if one member of that family, let's say there's four people in the family, right? And um, let's be patriarchal, okay? So okay. so the, the husband is a husband and wife and two kids. Uh-huh. And the husband, then the assets are all in the name of the husband, mm-hmm. okay? It's a it's an extraordinarily concentrated uh, institution, right? It's a setup. Like one person, what is it, the Gini coefficient would be, you know. Would be 100. Would be 100, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's so small that it, doesn't matter, right? There are other power arrangements there, namely it's a family, right? That 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 is not like there are obviously s- sort of some social problems, but it's not the same thing as a as a country with a hundred million people that has a Gini coefficient of a hundred, right? It, it's because the closer you are to people, the the smaller the the institutions, the so the you, less you, that you think you, the you sort of the social slash kin slash cultural ties are countervailing a f- force in a, in a no, sense. No, the smallness uh, of a of a culturally homogenous society has you know it does it it does matter. It changes the the policy um, requirements. But I will say this about Sweden. So one of the things that's I met with the Swedish banking regulator in the early uh, right after during the crisis. I was like I would 
one of the nice things about working in Congress is when you go to other countries, you can just like email and just the government. Or yeah, you're America. Like, you're the the great. Well, you just empire. meet with regular. You meet with whoever you want. Yeah. Not, not everyone, but like. So I met with the guy who the, Sweden had a very similar banking crisis in the 1990s that yeah. the U.S. had. And and I met with them. I was like, but they what they did is they nationalized they their nationalized banks, banks. They, but yeah. then they broke them up, right? And um and re reprivatized them. So they got rid of the bad debt. Yeah, yeah. Um and I was like, why? You know, it's what we didn't do, right? Which we should have done. We just nationalized the liabilities. Um, and uh, socialized the losses, privatized the profits. And I said, why did you do what you did? And he said, oh well, we were just copying what FDR did, mm -hmm. right? And he's like, oh, I don't know why you guys didn't do that. And then one of the things that I found with with um, I read this interview where Obama in uh, business I think it was in Business Insider, but he might have been saying it to someone else. But I, they asked him why didn't you do the Swedish solution, right? Because because the Swedish solution was was the the alternative, right? Even though it was FDR's solution, then moved into Sweden, and Obama said, well, that's it's a smaller country. We just have like we have so many more banks than they do, and besides, you know. Uh, this America, that's Sweden, and we have different traditions in this country. Sure, yeah. And so it's like, but what's funny about that is like Obama has a view of history, and that view of history constrained his his actions, but it also constrained what all of us thought, what you know, what everybody else was telling Obama to do, or or was trying to tell policymakers to do. And so when he thought, oh well, the Swedish solution can't work for the U.S., even though it came from the U.S. Right. That was that that just showed to me the power of these historical narratives to guide what policymakers can do. Yeah. Though I feel like in that case, it had to have been overdetermined. Right. I mean, uh, this might be a, this, uh, an answer he gives to Business Insider, whereas in reality, inside the administration, it's power and influence and so on. That's that's driving. Well, of course, it's power and influence right? in all of these calculations. But the but like how we think about power and influence comes from from the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, right? So, um, so like you know he, and and more importantly, like it's not just Obama that was involved in the financial crisis. It's not just a small group of insiders in the administration. In fact, the idea that it would just be a small group of insiders who would be controlling everything, and that Congress would just be following along, and that the rest of the public would just be like, "Oh, save us, Federal Reserve." That in itself is a function of the fact that we as a society had been persuaded that we didn't have a role in the financial crisis. And I remember this. I worked, you know, I was in 2008. I remember like working with candidates that I just helped elect to Congress. And they were just like, we don't know what to do. We don't like this bailout, but like we don't have any other, you know, ideas about like what has happened. Like they just didn't understand. They just didn't have any context uh, for why like the SEC or all of these institutions that had been set up precisely to deal with a financial collapse. Like that's what 1929 and 2008 were the same financial collapse, except with sort of in different markets, in 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 with different players. But if but the dynamics are the oh basically financial collapses are always the same, which is just people gambling with other people's money. And usually Florida real estate are involved, and usually Citibank is involved. Mm -hmm. Like that's just in America, like you could bet, pretty much guess that that's sure. like what's going to happen. Um, but but they they had no context, and so they didn't have an alternative, and they didn't have a way to to express the self confidence that in fact we could handle things differently. Instead, they were just like, well. I want to do this other thing. I don't think we should foreclose on everything, everyone. I don't think we should bail out banks. I don't think we should, you know, let bankers get off the hook for committing crimes. But all the scientists say that we should. 
and I listen to the scientists, and I'm uncomfortable about making decisions that the scientists say are wrong. Yeah, well, it's a technical, very complicated technical question, right? That's that's usually where they. Uh, it's where all they, very nuanced. Yeah, yeah, right? and you right, have right. to get to the. Yeah, Give yeah. me all the money. It's very nuanced. Why? But <laughs> so what's the so. Let's turn to small business a little bit because I don't know how much of this uh, is, uh, how much of the focus of this is is in your book. But you know, it seems like a, a heavy emphasis uh, of the sort of anti-monopoly position uh, is very much you know small business good, small business good. And I just have to say, you know, from my experience that I, as a as a regulator <laughs> at the National Labor Relations Board. The small businesses, they were not generally good. Now, of course, I'm only getting cases, you know, so I'm only seeing bad actors. But like the big businesses seem like they basically would follow the rules and they were obviously clever about getting around them a little bit more. The small businesses, like every time there was a wage theft type thing, it was almost always small business and frankly, almost always uh chinese food restaurants (laughs) like that was like the big thing and it just seems like if they're smaller they feel like they can kind of fly under the radar i do think that's selection bias yeah yeah it's like if you're (laughs) like the biggest problem in our economy is not like chinese in their chinese restaurant industry but (laughs) but it's a a general thing where i think they're like look it's small but we don't have hr i take your point point, right and i think that you see this in like for example um one of the biggest uh, kind of set of people that oppose doing things on climate change are are cattle ranchers, independent cattle ranchers. And they're super right wing and small bankers. You know, I I, like dealt with them. They are like, it's, they're not, um, they're not necessarily the strongest supporters of say consumer protection on overdraft fees. Like there's, I think, you know, they still have the normal industrial biases of their sector, right? Yeah. I mean, what, and it's not all small business people, but I think what you find is that a lot of, you know, in in America, but like just in human society, just some number of people are going to be assholes. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It's just you're going to ha- have that happen, and the point is not to. And some of them are going to just be racist or whatever. Like they're gonna, there's going to be like sexual assault. This is just like human society. Like we do these things, right? As humans, sort of the question is, um, how do you make sure that this stuff doesn't scale? So, you know, when when Sam Walton started Walmart. I think it was the 1950s. There were four general stores in Bentonville. And that meant that if you didn't like working for Sam Walt, you had three other options. And then you had a whole bunch of other stores that 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 sold food or or you know bake bakers or the baker, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, right? Sure. So if you were being mistreated, you could work for somebody else, right? And you had choices. When you roll up all the stores in a town into one Walmart, you put all the commerce under one roof, you have one option as a worker. And that means you. It, what Walmart says goes. They set the terms and conditions by which you work. And they might have a compliance department, right? But they control the town. And you see this in industry after industry where it's like if you are a, a, a chicken farmer or an Uber driver or whatever, it's like they tell you what to do, how to do it, what you get paid, whether yeah. you get paid. Well, but from the social, and that's dangerous, from right? The, well, so the two things, right? So one is... It doesn't seem like we see higher wages in the smaller businesses generally. I mean, if anything, it's the opposite. But that, those stats are kind of like those are. I mean, I don't. I don't. 
I mean, like, it could be a selection, but you know, no, no, in general, no, the stats are false, right? So you have like McDonald's uh, or like franchise restaurants will say, "Oh, we only are going to count the people at headquarters, not the people in the well, franchise." So we're distinguishing, so like, or, or Google, you know, Google will uh, hire a bunch but, of small cleaning companies, and you know, they used to. It used to be that they would, well, but they, those people would be internalized into the corporation. So it's like, no, eh, no, no I, they'll, I, don't, they'll, I don't buy those stats. There are studies that will, you know, compare, you know, apples to apples, you know, only food establishment. Etc. Etc. And and in general, at minimum, you don't see smaller businesses with higher wages. Usually, everyone's like they're lower. But certainly, it seems like oh, you know, I don't never see anyone say they're higher. Um, but, but then, that, and uh, but also the other thing is is that even if you accept that, I mean, the Wall Street Journal did a story on how that that gap has really. There's no gap anymore. That's chi- that's it changed. is declining. That the coefficient on the <laughs> regression well, is going down. Well, then you got to wonder why. I mean, um, and, and the the reason it, that that gap is it, to the extent that it exists is declining is first of all, a lot of small businesses are really just a- adjuncts of big businesses, right? So they they might be a small. Yeah. Business. it's like an Uber driver but, is a small business technically. I mean, come on. Well, right. yeah, they would they would go under an in, independent contract. They wouldn't be counted as a firm. They wouldn't be counted as a firm. But you know, one, but you one know what I mean. It's um, like a, a two person shop that's doing something for General Electric. They're yeah. they're a General Electric, you know, adjunct, right? And that's one of the things you see is that suppliers used to have some independence, and now they really they really don't. So so you know, this is the whole discussion of the fissured workplace. Sure, yeah, right? yeah. But well, then but, that gap is closing, and the reason that that gap is closing um, is because. Big firms have increasing amounts of power over workers, and like some people like to work for small firms, or yeah, starting yeah. a small firm is actually an alternative to working for a big yeah, firm. Yeah, but so 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 when you get rid of that, and you've seen a collapse in small business formation, um, and you've you know you're seeing like basically the mid-sized firms are wiped out, and then there's a lot of independent contractors, and there's big firms. Big firms just have more power now, so that gap is is closing dramatically. It is closing, but. I- what I'm trying to, I guess, here, here's who would be my argument on, on all these fronts, right? One, oh, well, there's an alternative where you can create your own business. Obviously, that is not like scalable. There's only some 5 million firms in the US. Maybe you could double it to 10 million firms, but well, no, there's but 160 take, no, no, million let's people. Let's take a different example. So I wrote a book, right? Mm-hmm. And when I sold my book, I there were there were five bidders on it, right? Which was Which was really good. But there were about 10 to 15 editors that were really interested. However... Not all of them could bid because there's been a roll-up in the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of those editors were actually, you know, were in different divisions of the same publishing company. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't bid against each other. They could have had to choose within the conglomerate. Sure. Only one editor. Get- now that straight up came out of my income, right? Okay. Because the bidding would have gone higher. And now am I a small business? I mean, not necessarily, but it's a small business-ish type of thing to write a book it's the small business-ish type of thing to kind of express yourself and sell creative content or to, you know, th- this is this is part of the American experience is to be yeah, able to create and, but and sell. And I'm, these markets are increasingly what trying, constrained. What I'm trying to get at is for the vast majority of workers, you're going to be working for a boss. It's not going to be your own firm. You're not going to be an independent contractor, freelancing or anything like that. It's just going to be a boss. And what no, is the but difference you're not to you? Necessarily going to be working for a boss. That's I mean, you're there's not necessarily going to be working for anybody. In, in, in any, think, in any country, that, have you ever seen a country where it's not the no, vast you're, you're, majority you're, of people? No, no, you're missing my point. I'm not saying that you're. I'm saying it's worse than working for a boss. If you're working for a, you're a content moderation company at at 
that subcontracts to Facebook, you don't have anybody that you can talk to about anything, right? At least a boss, right? That person has to live in the same community, take responsibility, uh, and they have authority over yeah, you and but, they have power, so, but they, but they, the, we don't have bosses anymore. We don't have anybody in control. It's so just these distant, these distant oligarchs that deaden, that deaden our souls and manipulate and control us. And in some cases do extraordinary amounts of harm and then don't even notice. And that's far worse than a situation where a boss actively mistreats you and you can go to uh, you have other options. Yeah, but so so that right? that's where I'm headed rather, right? So you can you can choose your boss in a sense. But like do you see there's or you a can there's start a, a company or you, you can, can't though. I'm, you can't all start companies. Like this is the thing I think for, you know, well, from you a socialist also, perspective is you're like, look, well, the we, vast you know, majority of people are not going to start I mean, their own company. Need you need labor regulations. You need right, right. protection. So, so that's where I'm headed. That's where I'm headed. Regulated markets. That's where right? I'm headed. So, so and that, that's that, a boss shouldn't be able to to mistreat you in ways that are. That's where I'm headed. Like right. It is separate from okay with socialist revolution. Blah blah blah. You could put that aside. Right. And say, ultimately, whether you have a uh, hundred bosses to choose from or one boss to choose from, the big thing that is going to be important to workers is not the number of firms, not the number of bosses. It's going to be, do they have a strong labor union who can really dictate the terms and conditions? Because to me, that is what makes the Nordic countries work. In a way, where, whereas you're like, how could it work? There's only two retail chains. There's only like one telecom. There's only, and it's like, because every three years, labor sits down with employers and they just set the rules for the whole so, labor market. So, so let me, let me, I basically agree with you, okay? I think that, first of all, we need radical wealth redistribution, okay? Because it's just insane that, you know, white families have 13 times on average the wealth of, of black families, but also you see within racial groups, you see enormous skews of wealth. You just can't start. Uh, you can't. You have. N you have no liberty if you have no wealth, right? Sure. And it's just we have massive numbers of people in this country that have no liberty, and that's wrong, right? And we so, and even even I believe really strongly in in small business. I think it's like an engine of freedom. But like, if people don't have any wealth, they can't start a business, right? If people don't have fuck you money, they can't walk away from their job. And it's just wrong that we live in a society where we where we put people in servitude the way that we do. I also think sectoral bargaining. It, it, it's it's probably a good idea. I would just say that like unions are often a, a good way to address certain industrial segments, but we need different forms of labor production protections in other segments of the economy. So for example, farmers, you need price supports. You also need laws that say you can't mistreat your workers, but price supports are the way that you do labor protection for people who grow things um, and who, who make food. For engineers, you need patents that protect their the, the, what they come up with. But you need patents that are designed to protect the engineer and not the financier. And we have the opposite right now. Same thing for copyrights. You need to have copyright protection for the artist, not copyright protection for the financier. We have the opposite right now. You need different protections for different industries. You need different protections for soldiers. You need different protections for government workers. I, what I'm, I come out of the producerist school, which is I believe that people that work and that make things and 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 sell things and produce ideas or produce uh, food or whatever it is that you should basically get the fruits of your labor. And I don't I don't disagree with you on on wealth equalization. I'm, I'm egalitarian. All I'm saying is that part of producerism is allowing people to create their own businesses, 
and to operate in, in open markets that are regulated fairly. Sure. So that, I guess that we have we have the may, liberty may, to inter, inter to exchange things and ideas with one another. Maybe it's a question of prioritization, right? So I'm obviously I don't have a I don't know an inherent problem with people being able to start their own business and that sort of thing. But to me, insofar as we know there's only going to be a few million people who do that at any given time because they're constrained by the basic realities of the size of the population, the need to find employees and so on, that seems to me so less important than rank and file, normal employees just having their union, being able to set the terms and conditions because the ability to escape out of your workplace and start your own thing is necessarily well, going to be a few a, million people. It's not an either or. And also, you know, we're forgetting about mid-sized companies. So in Germany, there's a very large you know, mid-sized corporate sector. So it's called SME, small and medium-sized enterprises. Well, mm -hmm. One of the things that's happened in the last 20 years is private equity has hoovered up all of the mid-sized companies in America and destroyed them, right? So having 5 million businesses that are essentially two people, you're only going to have, you know, 10 million people employed by that with 140 million um, workers in the US. That's not that many, although it does, you know, the threat of being able to leave matters. But if you have a bunch of companies that are mid-size, right, that are between 500 and 2,500 workers, these are companies that can do real things. They can build complex industrial machinery, uh, and they there is more liberty there because pretty much everybody knows, you know, a good chunk of the company. Uh, and that's the that's the, the that's the corporate sector that we've wiped out. So it's I don't I don't disagree with you that small businesses are the answer to everything. I'm not into that, and I think that there are obviously economies of scale, particularly for network industries and for industries that require scientific and engineering inputs. All I'm saying is, and I think for a lot of those those industries, you do need labor union protections. But all I'm saying is, it's a mosaic. Right, and we need to protect the producers. And protecting the producers is contingent upon the technical realities of each specific industry. And I also think it's important to emphasize liberty, right? Mm -hmm. Because because if you can, you know, and this is, I think, the the socialists. There's a romanticism to the way that socialists think about the world, and so it's like, well, I don't see. You can say, well, I don't see why small businesses really matter. And you have to think about the alternative. And the alternative is like, is if the alternative is a big corporation with a compliance department. Oh, well, unions. And then also, well, of no, course, the like socialist unions, wants the workers well, to take course, over the course, firm. But, so. but, but the, um, of, uh, like, uh, of course you want more power for the producer, but liberty itself also is really important. Liberty is actually, I think, foundational. And liberty means having equal economic power, equal political power. It doesn't have to be exactly equal. It just has to be like roughly equal. It has to be you get the base. Everybody gets the basics. You maybe can buy a fancier car than someone else or buy a not as fancy a car. But like the gist is that you don't have to live you know, in servitude versus somebody else who doesn't, right? And that's the foundation of my political philosophy. Is like, we should not be a society where, you know, swaths of the country are are living in servitude. And I think foundational to that is decentralizing power. Because the other thing that I think is dangerous about socialism, and and I'm, again, I'm I'm not like- <laughs> so You don't need a caveat. You know, Let's I'm go not ahead. like a, a red baiter here. <laughs> I think it is really worrisome when you concentrate power um, and then you have somebody who's really autocratic or dangerous take over, like win an election, 
and then all of a sudden it's all set up for them to control things. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but isn't this true of uh, the FTC or I mean, because because this is what this is one of the things I always found weird about the uh, decentralization stuff that comes from the anti-monopolists. Is, of course, they're like, look, we want to break up all the firms, and then you know all the power gets dispersed and so on. And it's like, well, who's going to break up all the firms? Well, of course, the central government is. They're going to have the power to break up firms. Well, you and do, you're I like, mean, well, you do... what if Trump has the power to break up firms? Of course, we've seen him abusing the, this power, or at least not breaking them up, but abusing antitrust. You know, well, I mean, well. look, if if Trump if Trump can just decentralize power, if that's his one tool, that's a pretty good tool for an. Like, but you've seen you... him blocking mergers based on, oh, this company is mean to me yeah, or whatever. Yeah, but that's a much better. I mean, look, it's much better for him to if if he wants to be look. Trump is a bad guy, right? And I'm sure, not sure. saying yeah, that, yeah. like we are in a perfectly. I'm just saying it's the same system. problem. It's the I mean, same it's problem not with the same both. Problem, right? Because like, if you have a system where the the let's say you elect a guy who wants to be an autocrat, and you give him the power to block a merger or to break up a firm, what he can do is he can use that in a way that's unethical and immoral, and he can block mergers and he can break up firms. That's not that bad. And he can permit mergers. But that, well, okay, so permitting mergers, yes. But like, it's not that bad if that's all he can do, right? If you give him the power to run those firms, that's very different, right? So that the centralization of power, like, it's just a question of, we're going to have autocrats that are going to, that are going to achieve power over institutions. It's just going to happen. So the question is, how do you set up a, a society so that we can manage that, so that we have some resiliency? And if you have a decentralized world, you're going to have a lot of constituents that are going to say, no, no, don't centralize power. It's going to be much harder for an autocrat to come in and take power and run power versus if you if you centralize it all already and say, this is the way to justice, the the road is cleared for an autocrat to just come in and say, yes, justice, my kind of justice. All right. Well, so that's uh, Matt Stoller. Uh, Goliath. Th- Goliath. The hundred year uh, war between monopoly you power can, and democracy. You uh, can buy it uh, on Amazon. I uh, hope we get to do this again. <laughs> I like I like the Matt debates. I yeah. Think, you know, we people will perceive that we dislike each other. On I Twitter love Matt true. Stoller because Stoller, unlike most people in this town, just he has his view and he's he doesn't let it. He's not playing games. Ooh, what campaign can I flatter and that sort of thing? And that's ninety nine percent of people. That is not true. That is true of Stoller. I believe it is true of myself and true of a few a few other people. Uh, but but I, I gotta say about about um, Matt Brunig is one of the things that I really respect. I think the thing that I respect is integrity because it's like. You know, a lot of people play the game where they're like, I'm a I'm a socialist, and that means that I don't really believe in all these socialist things. And like Matt does. Matt's just like, let's yeah. be socialists. Let's do it. <laughs> let's <laughs> buy up all the companies, right? put and them I, in a fund, and let's go. <laughs> I respect that because he's <laughs> and he also is very detail-oriented and is actually thinking through the implementation. And one of the things that's really nice is like, I don't agree with that, but I can actually argue with him. Right. Yeah, it's it's not vague or shifty or that kind of thing. There's something there to attack if you want to attack. Uh, right. Whereas, and you know, I'm I'm actually a little surprised. You know, Vanguard, which owns Vanguard, the- is a. Did you see my tweet yesterday? I said Vanguard is the country's, the world's largest credit union. What do you think of that argument? Well, no. So, so I want to just I want to make a joke. So, yeah. just I'm just surprised you haven't used. It's not. A, it's just like Vanguard of the proletariat. I mean, oh yeah, there's a pun there. Oh, I I, I, I did you, have you a post it. at one point <laughs> in which I said Vanguard is the Vanguard, but uh, okay, that good. was only a fleeting comment, unfortunately. Right. Well, I just feel like it wouldn't it wouldn't resonate with anyone except me. Yeah, and like Matt Levine of Bloomberg. He he was the only one who thought that was funny. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there we go. All right, thanks, thanks for having me. Bye.